Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study called Killing Me, Why Dying to Self is the Only Way to Truly Live. We think this series has the potential to change our lives. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, and we will be there in a little while, I promise, although it'll feel like a long time. But Matthew chapter 11, this morning as I was praying for us, I just sensed like needed to say this as we begin, that, you know, some of us, maybe many of us in this room would say, oh yeah, I have heard um, God speaking to me. You know, you have that kind of relationship with God where you just hear him talking and you talk back and it's great. But then there are others in this room that maybe you would say, I, I don't know what that's like. I don't think I've ever really heard God talking to me. I don't have that kind of uh, relationship with God. My prayer for you this morning, especially, is that you would hear him speaking to you and that the first words that you hear God speaking to you are these words. I no longer call you servant. I call you my friend. And I just can't think of anything almost more beautiful than for that to be your first experience in hearing the voice of God, that you would hear that resonate down in your soul. I also have a dream for this morning, and, and I just dream about what it would look like if a, if a local church of people, a local congregation like ours, was filled with people who genuinely enjoyed friendship with Jesus. Like, not just talked about it, but actually experienced it, lived it, like it was just the way that we lived, normal life. I have to think that a whole congregation of people who had that kind of relationship with Jesus would be electrifying. There's something about going through religious motions that makes us stale and has a way of rubbing us raw. And a lot of church people look like that sometimes, wouldn't you agree? My prayer this morning is that we as a whole body would be like just friends with Jesus. So that's where we're going this morning. And uh, when you're studying the Bible, sometimes it's helpful to step back and to get a bird's eye view of the whole context. So, the, so we want to do that as we get started this morning. And, I, and it might feel like we're getting stuck in the weeds a little bit, uh, but I promise if we chase this rabbit, we'll find it at the end. So would you please just ride this ride with me for a little while? But uh, it's important, I think, for us to catch just a glimpse of this whole, the whole context of God's Word, okay? There are a number of themes that weave throughout the whole Bible, and one of them is this tension between freedom and slavery. So freedom is found in relationship, in friendship with God, Slavery is found, it happens when we rebel against God. Now, when I say slavery, I'm not speaking about a person who is caught in that, saying that, oh, that person's a slave because they rebelled against God. That's not what I'm suggesting. However, I think we would agree that, that the, the blight of slavery, the institution of it on humanity in all of our history is here as the result of our collective rebellion against God. 
and that it certainly is not part of the heart of God for us. Make sense? But with that clarified, get into the Bible here. So we start on page one in Scripture, and we are introduced to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are friends with God in the garden, and they worked together with God in the garden. In fact, the Hebrew word translated work is also the same word that gets translated worship. It's the Hebrew word abad, and it gets translated work, it gets translated worship. So you could say when Genesis chapter 2 says that Adam was placed in the garden to work it, you could also say Adam was in the garden to worship. Same applies for you and for me. You could also say that uh, your work is worship. That, you know, work is literally one of the ways that you worship God. You come to church to worship, yes, but you also go to work tomorrow to worship. Things went swimmingly for Adam and Eve in the garden until they decided to bust out on their own away from God. And that's when work as worship, work and worship, that's when work became Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. That's when work became a four-letter word. That's when work became work. Adam and Eve thought that living apart from God would be freedom, but it turned out to be drudgery, slavery, work. Adam by the sweat of his brow and Eve with pain and childbirth. You've got a thorny, resistant soil for Adam and a painful, agonizing to reproduce life for Eve. Man and woman who worked and worshiped together as partners in unity with one another and with God then became at odds. Her desire for God was then replaced with a desire for Adam who used that to rule over and dominate her. The whole thing got ugly. The tension continued into the next generation to their sons, Cain and Abel, both called to worship and serve God, worship slash serve God. Abel was faithful, Cain was not. Abel was rewarded, Cain was warned. And so in an act of further rebellion, for the first time in human history, rather than make life, we took it. Cain killed Abel in cold blood. And there we learn another important principle, that men who rebel against God, men who live in rebellion against God, will always and have always been and always will be at odds with men who seek relationship with God. So God raises up another to replace Abel. His name is Seth. Seth is a man who seeks God. He is. And it's through Seth, eventually, that Noah comes, another man who sought God. And it's through Noah that Shem comes, a man who sought God. And it's through Shem that Abraham comes, another man who sought God. And generation after generation, you have these people who seek relationship, friendship with God, right? So you have people who find freedom in serving and worshiping God. And page after page throughout the whole Old Testament, we have documented history of men and women who served God and found freedom, contrasted with men and women who rebelled against God and became trapped in slavery. So serving God brings freedom. Serving myself will get me stuck every time. And we have the warnings in biblical history to prove it. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, God predicted it, actually. He tells them, he says, you will serve man-made gods of wood and stone. That'll happen. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. Do you hear the hope in those words even? As God predicts our failure, that if you seek me, you'll find me. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, chapter 10, verse 20, God's very direct with the people of Israel. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve him only. Would they do that? No. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47 and 48, they're a direct warning. God tells them, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart in all your abundance, you will serve your enemies. It seems that this is our choice, isn't it? Serve God and be free or serve something else and be enslaved. Years later, standing in the promised land, so now we're moving the timeline up, standing in the promised land, which God had just given to the people of Israel, Joshua challenges them with these words, choose you this day whom you will serve. And as Joshua challenges the people with this, the people are literally still holding on to their idols and their false gods. And then Joshua tells them, you know, you are not able to serve the Lord. But the people respond to Joshua saying, oh no, we will serve the Lord. And three times in the text, Joshua tells them, you cannot do this. You're unable to do this. And three times the people of Israel say, oh, absolutely, we will. Yes, we will. They didn't. They couldn't. Years later, 400 years later or so, King Saul is the first king of Israel. And he's supposed to lead the nation of Israel to faithfully serve and to faithfully worship God. But Saul failed. Saul mistakenly thought that he could obey God on his own terms. And so Samuel tells him these famous words, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't care about your sacrifices, Saul. He wants your obedience. Why? Because obeying him is the only way for us to become free. God is the only one who can rule me and not ruin me. And so generation after generation of failure to serve slash worship God, at one point they were warned because they repeatedly chose to serve other gods, to do their own thing. They would, God warns them that in doing this, you're going to become servants of Shishak, king of Egypt. I like that name, Shishak. Somebody should name their kid that. Shishak, king of Egypt, God told them that it would happen. He said, so that they might learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. Interesting, isn't it? God's hoping, reading between the lines, serving God is freedom, serving others is bondage. And they continue to insist on serving others, and God says, I'll let you do that so that you can see the difference between the freedom that comes in serving me and the bondage that comes in serving someone else. And generation after generation, this happens. And we reach the very end of the Old Testament. You come to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. It's the final book. 
And this is after multiple generations of people trying to serve God but failing. Generations of people who, in spits and spurts and jolts and jerks, they're attempting to serve God, but then they fall back into rebellion. Generations of rebellion, literally, interrupted by the occasional outlier of faithfulness. That pretty much sums up human history. Overwhelming majority of rebellion and a few outliers that remain faithful in the midst of it all. After centuries of this repeated cycle, the people of God conclude in Malachi chapter 3, verse 14. And this is the people saying this. It is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? Do you hear the desperation? Like, we can't do this. We cannot serve God. We fail generation after generation after generation. So if history ended with the book of Malachi, that would be pretty depressing. You would wonder if there was any hope for the human race at all, would you not? But thankfully, it doesn't end there. We find it difficult to serve God. We find it difficult to worship God. Thankfully, God intervened. Amen? Thankfully, God plunged into our mess. He left heaven's splendor. He dove headfirst into, the, into this sin-soaked world. And sitting at dinner on the last night of his life, hours before he was crucified, Jesus said these words to a group, a ragtag bunch of people who couldn't get it right either. He said this in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, and no, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? After generations and generations and generations of failure to serve God, the human race has reached a hopeless point that God himself intervenes. And sitting at dinner in flesh, God says, I no longer call you my servants. I call you my friends. I suggest that that night a seismic shift occurred. First, notice that the act of love, that the first act of love, Jesus says, is to die for a friend. Jesus said that. Greater love is no one, no one than this. He laid down his life for his friends. So when Jesus hung on the cross that day, he died for his friends. Did he not? This is amazing. Because Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us that it makes it pretty clear that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we were enemies of God, sinners against God, and he died for us anyway. But yet Jesus says, I laid down my life for my friends. So that means that Jesus calls you a friend before you're a friend. Yeah. 
while you are still a sinner, while you are still in rebellion against him, he says you are my friend. Could there be any better picture of this, I think, than what happened later in the garden that night after Jesus has the last supper with his disciples. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying there. Maybe you know the scene. He's sweating drops of blood. It's an intense moment in prayer. And there Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, comes into the garden, breaks into Jesus' secret place, if you will, with this detachment of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, you know what Jesus says to Judas in that very moment as Judas is about to give him the kiss of betrayal? Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. Friend, do what you came for. Jesus literally called the man who was about to betray him a friend. Have you ever known someone as kind as Christ? I haven't. So we go back to the dinner table earlier that evening and Jesus' words in John chapter 15. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. You see that statement? At first, we read that, and it looks like Jesus is making that a condition, like, you know, hey, prove your friendship by obeying me. That's maybe how you read that. I know that's how I read that right away. But that's actually not grammatically and in Jesus' language, like the way that he was saying it. What he's saying is this, that, that one of the evidences of friendship is obedience. It's a willingness to obey. You know, how do I, one of the evidences of our friendship, that you're my friend or I'm your friend, is if you need something, you ask me to do something, I'm like, sure, I'll do it. Is that not what friends do? Hey, can you help me with this? Yeah, sure, I'll be right there. That's friendship. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You are my friends if you do what I command. One of the ways that you know that you are a friend of Jesus is your willingness to obey his commands. How quickly you jump to it when he asks. Why? He's my friend. Of course I'm willing to do it. See? And then Jesus says that for his part, one of the ways that he has demonstrated friendship to you is that he has told you everything that the Father has told him. That Jesus has divulged the heart of God to you and to me. So friends, anything that you know about God, you know because Jesus told you. You have him to thank for that. And why do you know? Why did Jesus tell you? Because you're his friend. And that's what friends do. Friends talk to one another. Friends tell each other things. And Jesus says, as your friend, I'm going to tell you about the heart of the Father. And that's what he does. Now, Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That Jesus is that friend. So you say, well, what kind of friend is he? Let's talk about that just for a second. And for that, we go to Matthew chapter 11. I told you we would get there eventually. Matthew chapter 11. What kind of friend is Jesus? Now, for the sake of time, I can't read this whole chapter. I wish that we could. I would encourage you to do it. At least leave it open so that you can follow along as I walk through this. But here's what's happening, okay? Um, John the Baptist, it starts off with John the Baptist in prison. 
John the Baptist is doubting. He's struggling. He wonders if his life and his ministry was wasted. You know, John the Baptist is the man who literally gave up everything, right, to, to pave the way for Jesus and to prepare people for Jesus. If there was ever a noble servant of Jesus, it would be John the Baptist. Wouldn't you agree? Certainly one of the best. And here's John. He's in prison, and he's beginning to question He's beginning to doubt. Was this all for naught? Is Jesus really the one that we've been waiting for? And so John sends some of his disciples, some of his men as messengers to go to Jesus and to ask him, are you the one that we're, supposed to, that we're waiting for? Are you the true Messiah? That's, that's something. Here's a man who had devoted his whole life to serving Jesus. And here he hits a rough patch. He's questioning, he's doubting if it's all worth it. So now can you imagine the scene? Jesus is standing and he's teaching a crowd and he's having a great, he's I'm sure doing a great job like Jesus always did. And John's messengers come. John's messengers finally find Jesus where he's teaching. And they approach Jesus, they interrupt his great meeting and they ask him this question, Jesus, are you the one? They're on behalf of John the Baptist. And Jesus, in classic Jesus fashion, doesn't just say yes or no. Don't you ever wonder that about Jesus? Why didn't he just say yes? But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus says to them, hey, well, take a look at all that's happening. Look at the blind that are seeing and the deaf that are hearing and look at the lives that are being changed and the breakthroughs that are taking place. See, Jesus lays that out for them. And I guess that's enough for them, so they turn to leave and take this message back to John to let him know that, look, indeed, there, there are, the kingdom is among us. Look at all the evidence of that. That's, in essence, what Jesus tells them. So John's disciples, they turn to leave, and as they turn to leave, Jesus continues talking. He speaks to the crowd. Now, you have to imagine that John's messengers are still within earshot. They can hear this. And Jesus says, you know what he says first off? You know, among women, there has never been someone born any greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest human being to ever be born. Well, that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? You can't tell me. You don't think that John's messengers didn't pick up on that? Okay, mental note. John, Jesus said, you're the greatest human being who's ever been born, right? And as they're, as they're still within earshot, Jesus continues then talking, and he addresses the crowd. He blasts them for their fickle faith. He skewers them for their waffling and their inconsistency. He says, what, what, are, you, what are you doing, essentially? He goes, on one hand, this is verses 18 and 19, John came to you preaching in the wilderness eating bugs, living on honey, and you said he has a demon. I come attending weddings, dinner parties, and you say I'm a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. You see the problem? You have two men both pronouncing the same kingdom, right? And, and here's one, he's an ascetic. John is denying himself all these comforts. And they say, oh, he's demonized. That guy's nuts. And then Jesus over here, he come, he's not an ascetic. Jesus is engaging in dinner parties and weddings and so forth. And they say, woof, you're a glutton. 
And yet, all the while, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised, the kingdom is advancing forcefully, Jesus says. And so you're denying this evidence right in front of you. And then speaking of that, Jesus then continues to blast not just the people in front of him, but some of the towns that these people would have come from, like Capernaum. And he says to Capernaum, he says, you know, woe is you. If the same miracles had been done in Sodom, they would have repented and they would not have been destroyed. Now, do you remember Sodom? You know about Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole destruction thing because they were so bad? So do you see what Jesus is saying? That Capernaum, you're worse than Sodom. You're, and why are you worse? Well, because you have the evidence of the kingdom of God right in your midst. You're seeing this with your eyes. You're experiencing it and tasting it. And you're still refusing to believe you're calling John demonic. You're calling me a glutton. Essentially, what's wrong with you people? Why are you not seeing this, see? And then Jesus turns his attention to God, and he, and he has this prayer to his Father in heaven. And he says, I praise you, Father, because these things, even the simple people can see it. Children can see it. But all the people who think they're too smart they don't get it. And then Jesus says these words at the end of Matthew chapter 11. He makes an invitation to anyone who would receive it. So now Jesus turns his attention back to the crowd. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Dane Ortland, in his book, and I would highly recommend it, it's a book called Gentle and Lowly, he says that this is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus actually opens up his heart and talks about himself. It's the only time where Jesus says, do you want to know who I am? Let me tell you who I am. I am gentle. I am humble of heart. At the core of who I am. The words are reminiscent of what God said to Moses many, many years prior to that back on Mount Sinai. Moses, I am gracious, compassionate, forgiving. And now God in the flesh says, I am gentle. I am humble in heart. See, there's three big things that we can grab out of Matthew chapter 11. First thing is this, that Jesus is gentle and humble. The second thing that we can get is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. They called him that, they accused him of being that, but it's interesting that Jesus never denied it. It's almost like he owned it. You're right, I am a friend of sinners. And then the third thing that we can grab out of this is that Jesus has a soft spot for people who struggle, but he has very little tolerance for people who think they have it all together. It's remarkable, isn't it, that John the Baptist is struggling? Do you see that? He's hurting. John is hurting. He's in a bad spot. 
And do you see how Jesus responds to John? John, there's never been anybody greater than you born on this planet, buddy. You know? John, he's hearing all this. I'm gentle. I'm humble. Come to me, John. Come to me. He hears Jesus speak in defense of him. See? He makes sure that John hears it. But to the fickle crowd, to, to the people who were waffling back and forth, who accused John of being demonized and Jesus for being a, a glutton, see, Jesus, Jesus has no patience for their petty foolishness, does he? The book of James says that God opposes the proud but has grace for the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, so the surest, your surest pathway, the surest way for you to, to push God away in your life is for you to act like you don't need him. That's, that's the, if you don't want God around, that's a great way to push him away. Act like you don't need him. But friend, if you want God to come close, then you've got the bat phone, you know? Like the bat phone, the instant call, direct line is your confession of need. Oh, God, I got jammed up again. I need you. He's gentle and he's humble and he's quick to respond. Why? Well, he's a friend of sinners, which means he's a friend of yours. You hear that? I love that. He's a friend of sinners, which means he's a friend of yours. Unless, of course, you're not a sinner. I mean, you might be one of those people who think that they're too good for Jesus. That's possible, I suppose. But I can tell you this, you cannot be too bad for him. You might be someone who thinks you're too smart for Jesus, like you've got lots of things figured out and you think the whole thing's bogus. But I can tell you what, you cannot be someone who is too confused or too lost for Jesus. I can guarantee you that. And this has been God's habit for a long time. In generation after generation, God has lowered himself to embrace friendship with the unlikeliest of people. He walked with Adam, literally walked with him. And he walked with Enoch. He shared lunch with Abraham. He did a barbecue with Samson's parents. At another time, he had dinner with all 70 of Israel's elders and Moses. That's a big dinner party. He listened to Hannah's prayer. He defended David. He whispered to Elijah in a cave. He strolled with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. He ran into Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and he spent a long Sunday afternoon with John on the island of Patmos. Why? Because he's the friend of sinners, which means he's a friend of yours. And like them, you can be his friend too. So you say, well, why would God want to be my friend? If you think about it, it really doesn't add up, does it? God being who he is, God being as great as he why? What would he want with friendship with me? It's a great question. I can tell you, what, I can tell you why not. First, he does not want to be your friend because he's lonely. And he does not want to be your friend because he's needy. Not at all. God is self-reliant. He's the only being in the universe who is self-reliant. Like God has been fine for all of eternity before you and I ever came along. 
Would you agree with that? He's completely self-reliant. It's not that he needs you or somehow is lonely and he just thinks that your company would be the best. That's not why God chooses to be our friends. Why? I think the first thing to do is to remember this. Remember that at his core, he is gentle and humble of heart. Like this is who God is without you and me. Do you understand that? Like he is gentle and humble of heart. That's his character. And so, so God being gentle and humble of heart connects well with needy people like us because I, oh, hey, I, I need gentleness. Hmm. I, I need somebody to treat me with humility. I need some grace in my life. So that's a perfect marriage right there, wouldn't you say? See, here's the deal. See, he's... It, it is, he is gentle and humble, and here we are, he befriends us. And here's what that does for us. It changes us. It changes me. You see, grace brings sin to the surface in our lives. And I would say grace brings sin to the surface better than law does. Romans says that God's kindness leads us to repentance, So if you want to expose the truest character of someone, give them freedom and watch what they do with it. Because in their response to freedom, they will see more about who they really are than anything else. Let me just do a quick example. So like this is part of good parenting. When our kids were little, you know, you don't hand a two-year-old money because they don't even know what money is at that point. But they get a little bit older, four, five, six years old. They do a little job around the house or something like that. And you give them, you know, you're not going to give them 100 bucks, but you give them five bucks, let's say. Give them three bucks. Or it's inflation, so five bucks. Give them five bucks, right? And, and what do they do with that five bucks? The freedom that they have with that little bit of money says a lot about them, doesn't it? And it's a great teaching opportunity, is it not? As a parent to your child, like what they did with that five bucks, you know, we give, we would do that. Our oldest daughter, she would take it and stash it away. She saved every penny. Our son had it spent before he got it. That's just the way he was, right? And so even in that, is that not a good conversation for a parent to have with their children? Hey, what's this? Why, why do you stash it? What's the matter? Well, you know, what's, um, what are you thinking? Why do you spend it all? What do you learn in this about yourself, right? And you know what else we saw in our son? I can tell you this. I mean, yeah, he would blow it on a slushy faster than anybody, right? But he also had such a heart of generosity. He'd buy you a slushy too. And he was always broke. That's just the way it was, right? Is that not a good character quality though, right? Is that not an opportunity as a parent to say, look at this generosity and to praise that generosity, but then to also say, well, let's, now let's talk about some money management here too. Let's talk about, let's talk about delayed gratification. Let's, aren't there lessons that we can learn in that? So you see how that little bit of freedom, it, it exposes things about their character that you can teach, that you can work with. And this is exactly why Jesus does this with us. He gives us grace. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? It's a great opportunity for you to learn. Think of it this way. When I, was a, um, when I related to Jesus as a, as a master, I'm the servant, right? When I disobeyed him as my master, 
Well, that meant I was disobedient and rebellious. Did it not? But what is it when I do the same thing against my friend? That's ugly on a whole nother level. Same behavior, same rebellious, same sin, same thing. But in relating to him as my friend, I now see that on a whole deeper level. I'm like, God, I'm sorry. I'm such a bad friend. Wow. What, what needs to change in me? And I propose to you that that's exactly what's happening when we relate to him as friends. That is where we begin to change, truly change from the inside out, from the core of our being, in ways that we don't before that. Does that make sense? That he gives us this grace. And so Jesus looks at you and he says, you know, I'm, I no longer call you my servant. I call you my friend. And he gives you that. And now you have the opportunity to learn and grow in a way that you didn't before. So I want to ask you a simple question this morning as we close. And that's this. You know, a lot of us would probably say, yeah, I love God. And if I asked you, oh, yeah, I love God. A lot of people say they love God. But, and you can come play, Karis. But do you like him? Do you like Jesus? But do you hear how liking Jesus is different than loving Jesus? Like, do you like him? Do you actually enjoy him? Is he actually someone that you find fascinating? Do you think that he's funny sometimes? Do you enjoy his company? See? See, Jesus does not want to be my, my Sunday morning thing, and then the rest of the week is mine. He genuinely wants friendship. He wants an invitation by you and me into the most intimate areas of our lives. He wants into my arguments. He wants into my fears. He wants to be invited into my worries and my concerns. He wants to share my good days and my bad days. He wants to be invited into my bad habits. Like those, those aren't things that I can just keep away from him and, okay, Jesus, I know you can't see this part of my life. I always love that. Like why, we think we're protecting him. Like, oh, I, you know, I don't want him to hear that. He already hears it and sees it, you know? But somehow in our minds, we do that. And Jesus says, just let me in. And you will discover that he is gentle and humble in heart. That's who he is. He doesn't have to put that on. He doesn't have to muster that up for you. It's who he is. And doesn't that make him a great friend for the likes of you and me? So, the, so this morning, I want to invite you, invite you into friendship with Jesus. Please hear these words again. These are the words of Jesus. They're not my words. Remember how we began this morning. After generations of failure to serve God faithfully. God steps in and at dinner says to us, I no longer call you servant. I call you my friends. 
I call you my friend. Are you willing to receive that? Because Jesus is offering it to you this morning. So as we close here with a song, I'm going to open our altar and invite you to come and to simply respond to that invitation. God God says, I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. How do you respond? Let's pray. Jesus, we are so forever grateful that you would call us friends. We understand that we don't deserve that. How is it that someone as great as you would be friends with the people like us? And yet you are. So Jesus, I say yes, yes to friendship with you. I want to grow in friendship with you, Jesus. I want to learn to like you, to like you, Jesus, to enjoy your presence. And I pray that for every one of us here today. In your holy name we pray, amen. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We're really glad that you joined us. We pray that this message blessed you. If you're looking for some more information, you can check out the resources page at newriverchurch.org and you'll find the journal for this entire series. God bless you. Have an awesome day.